We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. A lot of people talk about 5G and semiconductors. We're lucky today to have a real expert on these topics for the podcast. John Smee, Senior Vice President of Engineering at Qualcomm Technologies. He has a really interesting view of what the future will look like, the connected future. So, John, thanks for being on. I think we have a lot of ground to cover, more than when we originally asked you. But let me start with the one that's apparently at the top of everyone's list. What do you think of the October 7th regulations on semiconductors? How does that affect your business? What's your overall view? Yeah, when we look at semiconductors, and what's really important is our ability to really broadly engage the market in terms of all of our opportunities. And so it's something where we're obviously closely following all of the happenings in DC and then making sure that we have the ability to continue to grow our business and continue to engage globally and then also focus on whatever we can do in terms of resiliency and making sure that there's a strong set of supply. And, and if we look at the kind of end-to-end aspect of, of semiconductors, various processing nodes, fully recognizing that, that all the technologies out there today uh, involves a mixture of nodes, not only the cutting edge, highest performing parts, but then also many other support chips and nodes to support other functionalities within products. And so I think it's something where we've all kind of realized the importance of the semiconductor supply chain in the last two years. And it really is an important area for United States technology investment in terms of making sure we have that critical supply chain and then also kind of recognizing a need for robustness and, and multiple players and really being adaptive to not only the semiconductor manufacturing side, but then also recognizing there's a huge participation in that from the job side, from the skill set side, there's many, many participants in that. And so I think that's also an interesting part of, of this, this funding and this evolution we've seen as it relates to workforce, as it relates to large number of participants in the ecosystem. What do you think of the CHIPS Act? I talked to an Asian investor from one of the big sovereign wealth funds yesterday, and he thought that it would be really hard for the U.S. to recover its position in fabrication. What's important about the CHIPS Plus Sciences Act is signaling that focus uh, Mm -hmm. from the United States side. So it's not only about the chips themselves and the, the semiconductor domestic fabrication, but then also on the sciences part, also on making those broader investments so that when we look at critical technologies, you know, semiconductor systems and and chips and products live within a complicated, typically end-to-end system. And so the need then for recognizing that how are we looking at critical technologies like 5G, 6G communication? How are we looking at compute and machine learning and data processing? How are we looking at quantum? So there's a lot of different interrelated industries that are going to get funded from the National Science Foundation. Good to see specific mentions of NIST, given the importance of global standardization. 
And then also this recognition that you have to invest early to continue to grow that longer term technology roadmap. And, and what's exciting now, as we're looking you know, in the next five to 10 years, a lot of this digital transformation that's occurring also means that, that we're creating new capabilities and then we're bringing, in some sense, new value towards these connected enterprises, towards different types of devices from Qualcomm, where we're really working with a much more diverse set of other companies, whether that's automotive, whether it's IoT, whether it's the evolution of augmented virtual reality or compute. And, and so recognizing then that these products and technologies that are evolving really still need to go back to that scientific basis of longer-term public-private partnership, longer-term investment. One of the arguments you hear, mainly from think tanks, which is always suspicious, is that the effect of the new regulations will be to reduce revenue to American companies, and that will hurt their ability to conduct R&D. Any views on that? I think it's very, very important to recognize the fully connected international world, right? So the, the reality of companies needing to export needing to participate to get scale in a global market. And that's something where, when you even look at yourself as a consumer and the type of products you have, and recognizing that those products are also global products in many instances. And so that means that, that technology leading companies like Qualcomm, we really do need to engage globally in terms of that, that market opportunity, and then also make sure that we're making the right investments that's gonna enable that differentiation enable competitiveness for companies such as ours, which would obviously US-based companies. And so it is one of those things where you have to recognize the interconnectedness and then the need to have that flexibility to innovate, to enter strategic partnerships, and to really be able to address these evolving markets with some flexibility. You haven't said the word China in any of this. Where does China fit in? Qualcomm does a lot of business in China, but so do a lot of companies. What's yeah, it really the, is like when we're looking at the entire international ecosystem and we look at, mm -hmm. for example, the importance of a global standard, right? We feel strongly that for technologies like 5G, 6G, you get that scale from a global mm -hmm. standard with many, many participants. And that's something where we do fully recognize that ability and that scale that comes from these global marketplaces and, and information exchange. This is the uh, geek moment of the podcast, and I may get it wrong, but one of the things that people have been talking to me about is that ARM architectures and RISC-V are changing the nature of the semiconductor market. Is that a fair set? Where does Qualcomm fall on this? Because you're a, you're a fabulous. Where does Qualcomm fall on the changing architecture or evolving architecture for chips? Yeah, well, there's certain things that I won't be able to comment on in, in terms of this podcast to answer some of the aspects of that question. But what I can comment on is that when we look at the importance of low power compute and we look at the ability to bring connectivity into new applications where you're kind of changing the way people are using devices in terms of all day battery life or how they're interacting with their devices in terms of a longevity a deployment model then from a processing standpoint, it's really important that you have this ability to offer compute that's very power effective. And at Qualcomm, we're also looking very strongly at the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, like bringing AI 
into the edge where you have that on-device compute. And I think that's also an important consideration is you, people can often think of the cloud data center side of compute, but then also recognizing that the types of compute that's occurring at the edge of the network is also growing significantly in terms of applications, in terms of you know, whether it's a smartwatch or whether it's an industrial IoT sensor, whether it's something that's being used for connectivity and smart sensors in an agriculture application. And you go all the way from that into you know, a connected vehicle or a powerful 5G PC, where it's a laptop that has that 5G connectivity as well as very power efficient compute. And so it is an interesting point that as we look at broadly at the, um, the role of compute and the role of communications, in many instances, they're, they're much more intertwined now because you have that, that connected devices where the compute and the way those devices are being used and how they leverage communication is getting more, I would say, interrelated in terms of the, the actual use case. So take examples where Qualcomm's made a, a number of important announcements in the area of augmented virtual reality where you have this ability to have these devices that really have different capabilities from a user interface standpoint, from a multimedia standpoint, from a connectivity standpoint, from a compute standpoint, but then all making sure that we're doing that with effective power consumption. We're getting a little off script, but you tempted me to ask. My assumption is that compute and telecom are merging and that within a few years, it'll be the same. It'll mainly be IP-based networks using servers, white box, cloud. What's your take on that? Yeah, I do agree that the compute and communication, one of the reasons it's merging is that the content that's being exchanged you know, over wireless is also being generated at the edge. So when we look at sensors, and you can look at downloading movie content to watch that for entertainment, or you can look at information that's being uploaded and downloaded when someone's on a wireless Teams call from their smartphone or from a connected laptop. And so what's happening is more data is being generated at the edge. Think of the diagnostics for a vehicle, the diagnostics in a factory, an AGV, you know, ground-based robot that's exchanging information to have that critical capabilities in an in industrial environment. So what that means is then the compute and the intelligence and the decision-making is often going to need to be made quickly. And it's going to be made not in the data center cloud. It's going to be made on the device. But to make good decisions, you're also mixing long-term information, intermediate-term information, short-term information. And so then all of a sudden, those different timelines, then you're exchanging information. You could be training something in the cloud, but you're making decisions on device. So then the communication side, you know, that cloud-connected device, and then the compute side, so that you're making good decisions when you need to make them. That's an example where that communications and compute are literally coming together because that, that device is an instantiation of both of those things where we have to get the right trade-off. And it's a little bit different depending on the application. So it, it does open up a variety of interesting engineering and product opportunities. It's not a one-size-fits-all, hey, let's make every decision in the cloud. Hey, let's, let's do all their training on device. It's actually a large number of trade-offs that, that represent this evolution of this digital transformation. I was actually thinking of it as a huge coding problem because you'll need AI to manage this. 
and whatever flavor AI. But to get that AI, you're going to have to write a lot of code. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's always that the key role of software, right? And I'm glad you're bringing up code because it is this thing where efficient execution of software via hardware, right? You're kind of going back to the foundations of what is computer science, what is computer architecture. But then when you get into these applications, it does come down also uh, to those exact things that when we look at bringing engineering ingenuity to solve some of these problems, then the trade-off between hardware and software and compute and communications and power consumption and capabilities, it's a very multi-dimensional problem. And then all of a sudden you need very creative engineering solutions and an ability to have that flexibility in terms of how you put these things together. Yeah, we've mentioned uh, IoT, Internet of Things, a couple of times. I'm actually kind of looking forward to a world that's blanketed with sensors, which will mean huge data flows and the need for more compute. What's your favorite IoT application right now? Yeah, I think one of the ones that brings together a lot of these modalities, think of a, a, a smart connected hospital, connected patient experience of the future. You kind of saw a lot of anecdotal realities during the pandemic of the need to configure hospital environments quickly based on changing realities of what was needed. And when you look then at the data and the data that that is, is brought to bear, whether it's from the, the medical staff, a nurse, a doctor, a physician's assistant, all those people working together. And then you realize even the, the global information is changing quickly in terms of what's the best approach to deal with something. And then you have obviously the accumulation of huge amounts of long-term learning in the field of health. So that's an example of like long-term and, and changing information. And then you bring into that the role of sensors and the role of all of a sudden, hey, yeah, people are going to have low power connected on-body sensors. And there's also, as we well know, people are taking vital signs and, and the ability to monitor those things, not because everyone needs to know those all of those numbers at every point in time, but you're really looking at basically anomalies when something's changing in a direction it shouldn't be, and you're getting a warning about something. And so that's a good example where that sort of experience for people and having an improved outcome can really benefit from technology. And it's not a point-wise single thing, hey, I'm going to connect this one part and then the, the problem is solved. It's really about taking a more holistic view and recognizing that, okay, there's the experience when someone's in the hospital. There's the experience doing telemedicine. There's an experience when a patient returns home and there's a follow-up routine where you're trying to lower the incidence of being readmitted. And so that's a good example where, to your point on sensors, you're going to have a lot of different types of sensors. And from an IoT standpoint, we can then look at the enterprise application where it's going after bringing value to a particular ecosystem like medical. Or you can look at this ability to reuse different types of sensors in different environments. And I think that's another thing that we're in the early stages of these, these low power connected sensors, being able to share data that's relevant, that's actionable, that actually is interesting. And that's where we can move between a lot of different applications of this connected sensor technology, all the way from agriculture, where crop yields are more important. How do you, you know, adapt to the local conditions of the soil? How do you adapt to what's going on? What's the prediction of precipitation? 
And so I think there we're in this era of being able to more intelligently use data, but to make those more intelligent decisions, we're going to be harnessing the power of these connected sensors. Where does 5G and 6G fit into this picture? You're yeah, talking wireless connectivity, right, for the sensors. Right. So what the wireless connectivity brings in is that ability to share things and to have that wide area range, right? So what's always interesting about cellular is people will talk of coverage and capacity and, and the ability then to cover and blanket an area with two-way communications and to do it cost-effectively. So that's kind of the, the game-changing part where originally, obviously, people were making cell phone calls while they're on the road. And then it quickly got into the fact that, well, these devices that are in everyone's hands are pretty impressive now in terms of the multimedia capabilities, in terms of the screens, in terms of the amount of information being exchanged. But I think we're still in that early stages of how taking that 5G and longer term 6G connectivity technology into these other IoT applications, it's really not about the connectivity. It's not about a data plan for an IoT device. It's really about well, what is the net utility of that? And I think that's all of a sudden brings in an important business model discussion, right? What problem are you solving? How are you solving it? And, and that's what's very interesting about a technology like cellular. And even when we look at the government investment in making sure that the United States is a leader as we enter the 6G era in 2030, well, one of the important things there is, well, how can we also learn from these 5G deployments to be a leader in the deployments to get that business model learning coupled obviously with the technical deployment itself? And I think that's where we're starting to see even as 5G is evolving, you, you know, how are people looking at satellite connectivity? How are they looking at connectivity in millimeter wave bands? How are they looking at connectivity in license spectrum and all these other bands as well? And so you put together this connectivity roadmap and you're realizing that it's really a long-term continually evolving opportunity that pragmatically takes these bigger steps together, right? These generations, as you mentioned, 5G, we're in the 5G era now, and we're, we're doing the research on 6G. The 6G era begins in 2030. And it's because you're taking that bigger step as part of a global ecosystem. So one of the things I have to ask this at CSIS, one of the things we still hear from people, including former chairman of large corporations, who shall remain nameless, is, the U.S. is losing the 5G race to China. <laughs> that always strikes me as a little silly, but do you even think there's a race? And if it's a race, what's it? it's not over the number of cell towers. Are we losing the 5G race? The U.S. is not losing the 5G race. When we look at that ability to take that 5G connectivity and deliver a meaningful value to it, I agree. It's not about number of base stations. It's really about how is the technology getting deployed how is it enabling new businesses? How is it better connecting society? You know, look at what 5G can do for digital divide in terms of better connecting people, whether they're on the road, whether they're at home, whether they're at work, whether they're at school. And you take those connectivity examples and you realize that technology leaders like Qualcomm, that what we're bringing to that is an ability to then lower the cost of providing that connectivity. And you're doing it in a way that combined with new types of devices that people can actually use. And I think that's the important part that 
the role of device, the role of content, the role of value, those are interrelated. And so the reason that the, the cellular connectivity is important is because people are, are using that connectivity to create value. And that value is then working its way into these new use cases. And so if we look at the commitment that we're already seeing the US make on 6G research in terms of, hey, we wanna make sure there's healthy academic funding, there's students studying important, hard, long-term problems. Well, that's an example where we've seen that increased focus from the US government and that desire to reinvest for some of this longer-term tech, recognizing that it's not about ordaining a particular solution or labeling a particular point in time as a generation. It's really about making sure you have a robust supply of ideas and talent that then has the flexibility to put these things together. I was actually going to ask that because you've mentioned incentives. And in some ways, we're talking about innovators and entrepreneurs who will see the opportunities that the new connectivity will bring. What are the incentives? What are the obstacles? I've heard a few people say, not from Qualcomm, that we're not moving quickly enough to take advantage of this. What is true is that we do need to make sure that the investment in getting the technology rolled out is not limited by some of these particular near-term economic modeling. Like, oh, I'm going to invest this and I want to make sure I know exactly what I'm going to get out of that. And therefore, we're going to pace the deployment substantially slower than the actual technology innovation. So one of the important things is, as we look at, for example, a 5G connected city or 5G connected vehicles, right? Think of smart transportation where you can make a real difference to the efficiency of operating a lot of these services. If you have connected vehicles in a connected city, leveraging the latest 5G connectivity. But that's something where it's a more complicated, sometimes public-private investment model. And I do think that's an example where we want to see more experimentation and that continued ability to roll this technology out, even though some of it, it's not yet known exactly how the business case, the timelines for that, because we're actually creating innovation on this, this new application as well. And so I think that's a good example where to make sure that we're the U.S. is well positioned into that 6G era, we do want to make sure that that 5G deployments are getting their way into these smart connected factories, getting their way into these smart connected vehicles, because that in and of itself creates new applications, new opportunity, new value riding on top of that. What does the world look like after 2030? And I think I was thinking while you were talking, when the internet was commercialized, nobody knew what it was going to bring, right? They thought it was going to be, you know, eBay. Um, and we're sort of in the same way as that, do we need to know? Do we need a plan? What, when you think about at post-2030, the 6G environment, where everything is connected with sensors, what does that world look like? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Jim, because you're, you're, what I like is this perspective of you are putting together some element of predictability. You want to kind of understand, hey, what are we trying to make better? I think that's the first problem to tackle, right? So we'll talk about, okay, what are the vectors where we need to be advancing technology? And so you're moving parallel things forward, right? So we mentioned the role of connectivity and compute and 
machine learning, where I can have smart devices, I can have a smart network. I can also have a smart air interface that's more adaptive to the particular service I'm operating at a different point in time. But what is important to understand is how far we can push some of these technologies that are evolving with other things that are more revolutionary. So you can take cloud computing as an example, where even in the 4G, 5G era, how you use cloud computing in a communication network is still changing significantly. So we expect 6G to be much more cloud native than 5G. And it's cloud native in the sense that you're approaching that software design in a more cloud-centric, disaggregated, virtualized way. And so the, the, the technology branch of software, how do we map that into a 2030 world? And you're realizing, well, we want it to be virtualized. We want it to be efficiently updated. We want it to be optimized in a way that can meet specific needs of specific use cases without boiling the ocean in terms of complexity and configurability. So you put together some of those software things with the fact that companies like Qualcomm, how are we pushing the semiconductor side of radio frequency circuitry, of baseband processing, GPUs and CPUs and machine learning and power efficiency? And so when we project those things, and we can do a pretty good job of understanding those technology trends to say, hey, as we're shooting for 2030, we're going to put these ingredients together in a substantially different way than we did in 2020 for 5G or than we did in 2010 for 4G. So it's really about combining the revolutionary and the evolutionary. And so we can have a much more predictable path on the stuff that's continuing to get better from an evolutionary standpoint. But then we're kind of looking outside the box in terms of, well, how do these adjacent technologies like quantum compute? Well, it's not like, hey, 6G is going to run on a quantum compute network. But we actually do have to think of security and that when, 5G, when 6G is deployed in 2030, it's going to be sitting around there in 2040. So how are we looking at resiliency? How are we looking at attack vectors? How are we looking at making sure that the architecture we're bringing is sufficiently advanced that it can then withstand some of these future threats? And so that's kind of the that interesting art of the challenge is, is trying to predict what do you know enough about certain technologies and then where are you also saying, well, these other technologies are not a big deal for wireless now, but they are going to be uh, 10, 15 years from now. Is Qualcomm doing work in quantum computing? I mean, is that We are, because we have to really look at the security side, right? Post-quantum mm -hmm. crypto. We have to understand yeah. uh, what do we need to do from an end-to-end -end standpoint of having these things operate in a way that, that critical applications are going to run over them. I think that's the other point always to think about philosophically is what is the, the stuff that's flowing on wires and what's flowing wirelessly? And so what's untethered or that ability to have more flexible deployments? And that is always changing. And I think a good example is in 5G, things like fixed wireless access, where people are saying, hey, I'm going to put this little box by my window. And now I have connectivity inside my home. And it's a diff different business model, different set of players to bring that what we call wireless fiber into these scenarios where you're improving that, that home connectivity experience, small office connectivity experience. Even as we look longer term then, the wireless connectivity data rates, you were moving from megabits per second to gigabits per second to tens of gigabit per second. All of a sudden you're realizing 
that what you're going to be doing wirelessly 10 years from now is a bunch of that stuff that you're doing on wires today. And I think that my, starts changing that paradigm a bit. That's been my assumption. And I think at least one of the big uh, carriers' assumptions as well, that backhaul will be fiber and everything else will be wireless. Is that is that too optimistic? Well, yeah, fiber and optical communications are incredibly important because that's that ability to have that dense deployment of fiber. And then you couple that with the fact that the wireless, you're going to have wireless front haul and wireless backhaul and and what we call these relays and repeaters and these cells that you can drop in a cell and you don't need to have fiber connectivity to the cell tower. It can be a, a lower cost deployment model because you're increasing that, that coverage and data rate in a way where you're leveraging the fact that, hey, I can now do tens of gigabits per second over a wireless link. And so it's an interesting thing then the network topology is something that also typically changes as we look at these generations because you're putting together that topology map with a pretty substantially improved set of ingredients. When you look around the world, where do you see the competition? Where do you see the people who are also coming up with good innovation? And the usual suspects are Europe, China, Japan. Yeah, when we look at the the international competition part, I think what's important to understand is it's, it's also this ability to bring these big ideas together. And I think mm -hmm. that's where combining that academic long-term foundational research with that pragmatism of, hey, we're trying to create and design technology that's going to get deployed. It's going to make a difference. It's going to increase GDP. It's going to increase this benefits to society. So when you combine those things, it's not just about kind of abstract academic work. It's really about how do you put things together in a way that makes sense at that point in time. So it's cutting edge, but it's cutting edge in a way that actually is cost effective, that the business model makes sense, the investment model makes sense. And I think that's where we see this ability. You have this global ecosystem, but you're also bringing that combination here in the United States with that technology innovation, that ability to have this long-term industry, academic, government viewpoint on where, what are some of these technology priorities and how do we put things together to make sure we're leading into that 6G era as well? What's your wish list? If you were going to get the U.S. government to do anything, what would your wish list be, near-term, medium-term? My, my wish list would be to, to make sure there's that right incentive model to help have that risk-taking to get that 5G deployment into more connected industries, more connected factories, more connected vehicles and cities. Because I think that sets a bigger sandbox here for the United States that combine the technology innovation with the business expansion innovation. And so it's about making sure that it's not just about deploying in the sense that, hey, people have 5G connected smartphones, we can stop until 2030. It's really about let's make sure we go that next step as a country to bring that technology into more of these connected schools, hospitals, factories. And so I think from my standpoint, that combination of longer term investment of, into the academic industry global ecosystem, but combined with a pragmatic approach to really increase these deployments so that we have that experimentation. I don't know, John, after talking to you, I feel like I almost understand this stuff, which is probably a bad sign, but did, <laughs> did we, did we, and we know it's probably wrong too. Thanks for doing this.
My and pleasure, we'll, Jim. Always great to chat and uh, look forward to yeah. seeing you in DC before too long. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.